Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Clausewitz said that politics and diplomacy were war by other means. Churchill put it more colorfully when he said that diplomacy is the art of telling people to go to hell in such a way that they ask for directions. The impeachment hearings pulled back the cover on the work, the integrity, and the quality of America's diplomats. Perhaps it's their uneffacing, sometimes quiet professionalism that seemingly makes them targets of the more malevolent forces in our government. This was certainly true with respect to attacks on the State Department during the dark days of McCarthyism, as it's equally true during the dark days of Trump. Whatever the reason, perhaps there's no better time to look at these talented and smart men and women than now in the midst of the Ukraine scandal. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Paul Richter. Paul Richter covered the State Department and foreign policy for the Los Angeles Times for many years. He previously covered the Pentagon, the White House, and New York's financial industry. It is my pleasure to welcome Paul Richter here to talk about the ambassadors, America's diplomats on the front lines. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to do it. Well, it's great to have you here. Why is it that the State Department in general, the diplomacy in, in, in a sense, often comes in for such criticism, particularly in difficult international times? Well, uh, they've got two problems. One is the public doesn't see them much. Um, they're a small group, really, and their job is to, uh, to say things softly, you know, not to reveal too much, and they don't really stand out. The generals, the spy chiefs, the special forces operators, they're flashier and they get more attention. The other problem is that the Foreign Service is a group of, uh, of experts who, who are paid to have an independent judgment on foreign affairs, and often presidents and also members of Congress uh, think that those opinions kind of get in their way because presidents and members of Congress want to, um, they want to make a mark on world affairs and do ambitious things. Talk a little bit about the Foreign Service and, and the difference, and it's one of the things that's come out in the course of, of the hearings, the difference between those that are in the professional Foreign Service, ambassadors that have served for a long time in multiple countries, and, and people like Gordon Sondland who come in as, as ambassadors because it's a kind of pay-to-play system in part. Right. Well, the custom in recent uh, decades has been that about one-third of the uh, ambassadors are political appointees and two-thirds are career diplomats. The, um, uh, the political appointees are often um, donors. They're people who've, who've helped out presidents by raising money, by bundling money during campaigns. Um, and they don't have the same background, uh, obviously, that the career diplomats do. So it's, it's quite a divide. Now, some of these um, political appointees are very talented people who have a lot of skills and do a, do a really good job. But many others of them uh, are not well equipped and don't, don't have the background and don't even understand much about the countries that are assigned to. And part of what we see is that it's often the skilled professional diplomats, the career foreign service people, that get the most difficult postings, that have the countries where there are real problems. That's right. If you're a if you're an ambassador donor, uh, you want to go to the nice places. You know, you want to go to Western Europe, the West Indies. There are places uh, that have beautiful embassies. You want to go there, and you don't want to have the, go to the hot spots. 
And but the ambassadors that I write about in my book are the people who go to the real hell holes, um, who take on the toughest jobs in the battle zones. Has there been a significant change, do you think, in the way professional diplomats are looked at today versus the way they were viewed in, in the period immediately after World War II, in, in the post-war period, when there was a higher respect and appreciation for, for those diplomats? Well, you remember right after World War II was a low point um, for the diplomatic corps because there was the McCarthy era where there were suspicions by uh, conservative members of Congress uh, and others that there were too many communists and fellow travelers in the in the State Department. So that was a dark period. But um, <clears throat> but then um, later, I think the reputation of the State Department recovered somewhat. And for most of the Cold War, I think it was uh, it was people looked more more favorably on them. When did it get caught up in this whole idea of, quote, unquote, the deep state? Well, that's that's a fairly uh, the term is is new. You know, that was originally applied to countries like Pakistan and Egypt, where there is, you know, military leadership really run the show. Um, But there has been uh, suspicions by presidents for a very long time, including Democratic presidents, that the diplomatic corps had their own priorities and their own view of the world. Um, and the presidents uh, feared that the, uh, the career diplomats didn't really fully share their, their agenda in foreign relations. One of the things that, that you talk about in your book, The Ambassadors, is, is a number of people that really have done remarkable work, people like Ryan Crocker, for example. Well, Ryan Crocker uh, was called uh, America's Lawrence of Arabia by George W. Bush because Crocker had kind of been everywhere and done everything. He was ambassador to six countries, and they were all tough places, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, um, Kuwait. Um, he really liked going uh, to the battle zones. He felt he was good at that from the beginning of his career. He was in Beirut in 1983 when the U.S. embassy was bombed, and Crocker had to spend a couple of days pulling bodies of Lebanese and Americans out of the wreckage. And it was a crisis, but Crocker realized then that he was cool in that kind of situation, that he was that he was uh, that he had the kind of skill um, to to handle situations like that. And that drew him back to these tough spots again and again. To what extent is our view of diplomats and diplomacy shaped by popular culture, do you think? by the way diplomats have been portrayed in, in literature and movies, etc. cetera? I, I think it is shaped uh, to that way uh, to a great extent because they're usually seen as people who uh, sip cocktails in evening dress and in embassy <laughs> parties. Um, and part of that image is because uh, average Americans don't have much contact with the ambassadors and they don't really know any differently. They don't hear about uh, what these people are doing behind the scenes. And as I said, ambassadors are not encouraged to be candid and splashy. There are a few who are, but for the most part, they tend to be really muted 
So, um, so the public doesn't know much about them. You know, there was a movie made about one of my, one of the people I wrote about Chris Stevens and in the movie Stevens was portrayed, um, as kind of a, kind of a soft guy who spouted diplomatic cliches and had to be, uh, rescued in Benghazi, Libya by these brawny, uh, security guys who, who were there and fought off. Uh, tried to fight off this terrorist attack at the American mission in Benghazi. And in fact, that wasn't who Chris Stevens was at all. No, I mean, he was a guy who volunteered uh, to sneak into Libya on a cargo ship uh, while Libya was being bombed by NATO. And he stayed through the Libyan civil war in Benghazi. One night he had to he had to get out of his bedroom because the... Uh, uh, they were afraid that there were Scud missiles about to rain down on, on his hotel. Uh, he was had to hang out and try to meet all the local militant leaders. I mean, he really put up with a lot of danger, and he went into Benghazi uh, on the trip that you know led to the end of his life because he thought he really needed to be out there dealing with people in that tough part of the country. To what extent has the work of diplomats in the field and some of these people we've been talking about, to what extent has that been shaped at different times depending on who the Secretary of State was? Well, the Secretary of State and the President uh, and their agenda really has uh, a lot to do with, with the role of the Foreign Service generally. When uh, George Bush, after 9-11, decided that the U.S. needed to really um, uh, become more uh, aggressive in the Middle East, uh, the Foreign Service had to go, along with the military and the intelligence community, out into these countries in the Middle East and, and South Asia to, uh, to do part of the job. So thousands of diplomats were sent to Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and uh, it, they were really uh, a lot of them were unprepared for this because they signed up for diplomatic service at a time when it, it wasn't expected that diplomats would have to serve under fire. Talk a little bit about the relationship that has existed historically between diplomats and the Pentagon. Well, uh, there's been a uh, uh, I mean, it, for long periods of time, they've gotten along well. But in uh, in recent years, uh, after after 9/11, there has been some jockeying for influence because in the era, era that I wrote about, um, the military was used much more heavily in these countries, and generals like General David Petraeus and General John Allen had a lot had a lot more people under their command and a lot of influence because. These were wartime situations, so naturally the military um, was uh, had a much bigger role. And sometimes there's kind of a cultural clash between the military and the diplomats because they speak a different language. You know, the military guys speak in, uh, you know, in their own code and they use their own abbreviations, and the diplomats, um, you know, they're, uh, <clears throat> they don't have that language at all. So there's kind of a culture clash there. One of my diplomats, Robert Ford, told me that sometimes 
he understood the Iraqis better than he understood the American military. So there is that conflict. But at the same time, they've often gotten along well. I mean, uh, General Petraeus and Ryan Crocker got along harmoniously. Crocker got along really well with John Allen in Afghanistan, too. So uh, though there are often tensions, there's often been good relations. To what extent do you think that that the exposure, and this is some of this is speculation, the exposure that that these professionals are getting now, today, literally today, do, do you, what do you think that impact will be? Well, I mean, I think there's a, uh, a basically a battle going on for the reputation of the diplomat, because the testimony in recent days by people like Bill Taylor and George Kent, and uh, today this guy, uh, David Holmes, uh, has really uh, caused some people to view them as heroes, people who, as people who've come out to stand up for what they believed in about America's interests. Uh, but on the other hand, at the same time, these people are also being denounced elsewhere in the media. And so, um, you know, it's a it's a pitch battle, and we'll we'll see what what happens. It does harken back to to the McCarthy era when they were criticized, I think, by McCarthy himself as being uh, pointy headed elitists. Right, and Richard Nixon uh, was part of that, and he was deeply suspicious of um, of the diplomatic corps. Even after he left office, he testified to a grand jury in 1975 that that the State Department uh, folks were a bunch of eunuchs who hadn't had a new idea in 25 years. Talk a little bit about what you see the attitude being inside the State Department now as you talk to all of these ambassadors, these professional and career people. How do they feel about the work that they do? You know, uh, these people are drawn to it for a couple of reasons. One is they really find it fun. They really find the subject interesting, they think they can have a big impact. Many of them also believe that they can do something for the country as well. A lot of them come from families that have been sending people into public service for generations, many of them um, uh, in, into the military as well as the diplomatic service and sometimes the intelligence services as well. So uh, that's their motivation. Now, they're they're worried about um, the current administration because President Trump has a more wary attitude, to say the least, about career diplomats. And the Foreign Service has been kind of scaled back and put into less important jobs in the last couple of years. And now, now that these uh, diplomats have come out and testified publicly, it may be that the Trump administration is going to be even more suspicious of them and that the Foreign Service's role will be reduced further. So I think there's a lot of apprehension about what comes next. You know, a lot of these people, to give you an example, um, David Holmes, who uh, is testifying today, you know, he put a lot of effort into his career as a diplomat. He studied international relations at Pomona College. Then he went to the Woodrow Wilson School, a graduate school, and he's been in there for years. So he doesn't want to, you know, what doesn't want to shift careers at this point in his in his life. He want, uh, he and a lot of these other Foreign Service people, experienced people, want love this career and want to hang with it. 
but they're worried about what comes next. Is there a recruitment problem today? Well, it's interesting. The the number of um, uh, young people who take the foreign service exam is about 8,000 a year now, which is down from a peak of, um, I think, 20,000 in the in 2010. So there's been a real slackening. But at the same time, a lot of young people see this as an exciting, uh, interesting kind of work. And I have friends who teach courses at uh, international relations graduate schools, and they say there's still a lot of talented young people who want to get into this kind of work. It does seem like the the political divide in this country and nationalist fervor that exists in certain corners has played a role in this as well, in, in terms of making us look more inward as opposed to outward at the rest of the world. Yes. Well, we're at a moment now after these long wars in, in the greater Middle East where uh, so many Americans think that we've kind of been overextended and that we need to, uh, that these wars have been a, uh, a, a loss without, without a lot of, um, you know, proven benefits. And so they want to pull back on that. And I think um, it, as a result of that, there probably is going to be a retrenchment and less adventurousness uh, overseas. But I think that can go too far because if we ignore some of these problems overseas, their effects can come and hit us. I mean, emigration from places like Syria and Afghanistan has really destabilized Europe, which is our strongest ally in the world. And so we can't entirely ignore all these things that are going on. The irony is that if we're concerned about these long wars and still having to exist and deal with the rest of the world, it is an argument for greater diplomacy and greater skill on the part of America's foreign service. I think that's absolutely correct. You know, even if we can wind down all these wars, we're still going to deal with a big and growing problem of unstable states all over the world. Africa, um, Central Asia, but also in Latin America. You know, we have these countries, weak uh, countries in Central America now that are in deep trouble and that are sending a lot of um, immigrants toward us. So uh, we need to help stabilize them or their problems will become our problems. Is there any kind of a nexus that you found between our foreign service and, and American diplomats and diplomats from other countries and, and, and how they're able to work together and the quality of the people in those other foreign services? Well, um, the Europeans in general have a have a high quality uh, diplomats. They don't, um, for the most part, allow any um, kind of amateur political donors to get important ambassadorships. They just they they see that as a really a real peculiarity of the American system. Um, they wouldn't think of sending. Uh, somebody who was not a career diplomat to be the ambassador in Washington, for example. Um, for the most part, though, um, you know, the Brits, the French, the Germans, they're all, they have highly trained diplomats who get along uh, well with our diplomatic services. And they generally share the same 
view of the world. So these are good relationships. And I talk about that some in my book. Mm -hmm. And what about China? What about their diplomatic efforts? What do you see there? Well, they also take it very seriously. It's also a professional diplomatic corps. Um, I would say their their diplomacy is closely tied to their economic aims and military aims, um, perhaps especially the economic aims. So I think they're closer. Um, they're, they may be even more intertwined with uh, the Chinese leadership's political goals overseas, uh, even than our people are. Is there a new generation emerging in the diplomatic corps? Well, um, there's been a, a, a gradual shift. The, the State Department has tried to make the Foreign Service more diverse over the years. You may you may know that in the old days, the the, the line was that the um, that the Foreign Service was male, pale, and Yale right. because most of their um, people were kind of from the East Coast establishment. And so beginning in, the say, the 70s, there's been an effort to bring in a more diverse group. But that's been hard to do, and they've struggled. It, it turns out that the uh, diplomatic corps uh, had more African-American members a few years ago than it does today. It's been consistently difficult to bring in um, uh, African-Americans and Hispanics. And they're, they're trying it. They're doing outreach around the country to kind of uh, make it um, more, more diverse. But it's, uh, it's still a struggle. Why has it been so difficult? You know, I'm not really entirely sure of that. Um, I think, I mean, there's something about um, probably competing lines of work that are probably drawing away talented candidates to other to other fields. That would be my guess. I'm not sure how that how that works. And certainly, if what we've seen recently is any indication, there there seems to be more certainly women coming into the diplomatic corps. I think there are. I think there's a good there's a good draw on talented uh, women. That's been um, they've had more success bringing in women than they have a minority candidates. But it's still not as many as they'd like. Now, Ann Patterson, who I write about in my book, um, she had a series of really responsible jobs. They they loved her. And they just kept giving her, they moved her from one position to the next. And she took on some really tough ones. Uh, at one point, she was running the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, which is this huge bureau that tries to deal with these insoluble problems of drugs and crime internationally. And they're always getting in uh, trouble with Congress because uh, there's they they dispense a lot of money that has you know that's not uh, can't be carefully monitored in its spending in in foreign countries. Uh, it's really tough, and Ann Patterson was was willing to take it on. And talk a bit about the relationship that has existed between the intelligence community and the diplomatic corps. Well, they work um, closely together, and they have sometimes overlapping functions. Uh, when Ryan Crocker was in Pakistan, um, uh, 
And when he was in Afghanistan, um, the intelligence uh, services were gathering information like like he was. They were involved in the counterterror operations, uh, which he was to a lesser extent, but he also, that was a big part of his brief. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, the CIA and the intelligence agencies have been described as diplomats with teeth because they do some of the same things. Uh, you may remember that after 9 11, um, the first Americans to go into Afghanistan to try to knock over the Taliban government were CIA operatives, and they were the first people to try to stand up a new government in Afghanistan after the Taliban fell. Is morale terrible at the State Department these days? Well, of course, Secretary Pompeo is insisting it's not, but uh, from everything that I gather from talking to, to diplomats who are on the job, people are, are very nervous, very worried, um, and I would say that a lot of people, because they love this kind of work and have put a lot of effort into, into their careers, uh, they're just hoping that there'll be a change, that, that uh, if President Trump is is reelected, he'll come to have a different attitude about diplomacy and, and appreciate it more, or there'll be a new president who tries to restore, um, you know, the, the State Department to its former glory. But you've probably seen predictions that it may take a generation for the Foreign Service to be restored to what it was earlier. Paul Richter, his book is The Ambassadors, America's Diplomats on the Front Lines. Paul, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.